Welcome to MediaPost's Brand Insider. I'm your host, Steve Smith, Editorial Director of Events here at MediaPost. Each week, we interview marketing leaders from companies old and new about how they build and evolve their brands on an unpredictable media and culture terrain. In addition to this full audio interview in podcast form, we also publish a companion newsletter with highlights from the Q&A. MediaPost has been covering marketing and media news for over 20 years. You can find the Brand Insider Weekly as well as our daily coverage at MediaPost.com. Now, let's get into it. Let's welcome to the Brand Insider, Tara McGowan, who is currently the founder and CEO of Acronym, uh, which is a nonprofit that has multiple pieces we'll get into in a second. But part of it involves spending over $75 million uh, in the current presidential cycle. Tara has long been an advocate for investing more political marketing budgets into digital channels. She led the advertising effort for one of the biggest PACs supporting Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential run, Priorities USA. Welcome, Tara. Thank you, Steve. It's so good to be here. Uh, we are. Uh, I, we should explain that we're chatting the morning of January 7th, uh, which is the day after MAGA rioters breached the Capitol and delayed the certification of state electors in the 2020 presidential election, which eventually occurred early this morning, which both of us stayed up <laughs> to monitor. Uh, but are you in D.C. and are you safe? Um, I am not in D.C. I am in my uh, home state uh, of Rhode Island, which is where I've been camped out since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, but uh, obviously I'm safe and, and all of our team members that are that do reside in D.C. are safe. Thank you for asking oh. that. I'd also love to mention that yesterday was also the day that Democrats took back the Senate um, <laughs> with two wins in Georgia. So it was a uh, it was a roller coaster of emotions all around for our country. Uh, so uh, I, I used to, I lived for many years in Rhode Island. I did all my graduate work there. So we can talk about quahogs. At some Absolutely, point. <laughs> it's uh, I I dig them myself. In the no summer. one on this call will know. <laughs> Except us. <laughs> they may have watched so, the Family Guy. <laughs> it took me a while to figure out when I moved there what a quahog was. <laughs> it just it's the size of the clam. Right. <laughs> um, so um, first of all, let's start by telling talking about the acronym model that you came up with, because it is different from most. Um, what are the pieces? But also, I, I know that uh, it was born from your own attitudes about the agency model uh, as it's taken shape in, in political marketing. So why don't you yeah. go ahead and tell us about acronym? Sure, um, and that's right. So I, I worked in um, uh, democratic politics, um, running digital advertising and content programs for a number of years for different organizations and campaigns before starting Acronym in 2017, after the 2016 election. And in my experience prior to starting Acronym, um, something that I found uh, to be frustrating in, in really 20 after 2012, between 2012 and 2016, was um, I, I really started to get into positions um, where I had real influence and was able to, to build digital advertising programs when those are still quite nascent in politics. And um, in, in politics, really, the model on for nonprofit organizations uh, that do work on behalf of of political candidates and parties, um, it really relies a lot on different consultants, like any industry. They have pollsters, they have traditional media consultants that do the television buying, and then they have digital consultants who do the media planning and buying and sometimes online fundraising and other things. And so um, when I was at Priorities, as you mentioned in 2016, I ran a $42 million digital advertising program. Uh, yes, in support of Hillary Clinton, but mostly uh, opposing Donald Trump. Uh, so I have been doing that work now 
now for too many years. I am uh, very glad to see him go in just a few days time. Um, and, and, and something that came to light for me in that experience with that large of a program was um, like any program director, I wanted to make sure that my program was as effective as possible. And uh, anyone who works in digital marketing and advertising knows that the, the platforms uh, change their, their policies, their advertising um, uh, capabilities and services all the time uh, on a whim because there isn't a lot of regulation. And so agencies really struggle to keep up with those changes. And when you're working in politics, it's really high stakes. You have very little time to to expend an enormous amount of resources uh, to to shift uh, people's opinion and get them to turn out and vote, and so um, you you can't you really need to know that that's working and you have to be really efficient. And what I found at that time in 2016 was that the consultants uh, really had this attitude of just trust us. And when anybody tells me that, my attitude is very much I need to understand what's going on under the hood. And what I found really um, made me really uh, deeply deeply frustrated because. Their business model, in order to be sustainable, really relied on um, on getting their their clients and organizations and campaigns to spend as much on the platforms that really weren't as laborious. And at that point in time, that meant spending a lot of money on programmatic pre-roll video buying and not spending as much on platforms like Facebook, where um, you know they had self-serve tools and you just needed to actually do a lot more work because they were custom. And yet, as we all know, Facebook is the most powerful tool to reach the American electorate today for better and for worse, often for worse. Um, And that was true in 2016 and Trump understood that. And yet um, in my experience there, I, I, I really had too many layers removed. So in that period of time, I started to actually do more of the buying in house and more of the creative production because it allowed my team to be more nimble. So when I reflected on everything um, after a, a very you know, traumatic break after the results of the 2016 election, I wanted to create a different kind of organizational structure on the left that put impact at the very centerpiece of the work of digital marketing and advertising and not profit in order to, um, to, to really have nimble teams that could constantly innovate and pivot if they needed to. So never to be dependent on one platform or strategy. And the only way that I could see a path to doing that was to make it a nonprofit organization. And that would allow us to run programs that were experimental, that could have an impact on elections and advocacy and learn through those programs and then be able to share those learnings with the community. So a very long-winded way of getting to your specific question. Acronym is a nonprofit. It's what is called a 501c4 organization. Um, And what that means is it allows you to do both charitable work like any nonprofit organization, but it also allows you up to 49% to do work that can influence elections, whether that's lobbying or independent expenditure advertising programs, which is what we do. Um, Also, Acronym is the sole shareholder of Lockwood Strategy, which is our in-house agency. That is where all of our media planning, buying, data analytics, measurement, and creative production uh, team work. Um, and in addition, we have an affiliated super PAC called PACronym, uh, which allows 100% of that expenditure work to be uh, done influencing elections. So it, it is complicated, but there is a there's a method to the madness. It really allowed us to raise money to deploy um, uh, to help progressive candidates and causes advance and, and do it in a really um, nimble and uh, and cutting edge way so we could constantly be innovating. 
it's interesting that that sort of follows a trend that's also been occurring in recent years among consumer brands, bringing more in-house for exactly, for many of those same reasons. Uh, including that the platforms have made it so much easier uh, for somebody to do it in-house. Yeah, and also, I mean, we, we've made a massive evolution where, you know, digital marketing or, or or being, you know, having your company or your brand on Facebook or Instagram, it's not an add-on. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it really is the centerpiece of how you're communicating with your consumers, your audiences. And, and so you need to center that in all of your communication strategies. And that's that's a real shift. Um, and, and frankly, uh, it's our belief that campaigns are, are most able to make that shift quickly because they're they're really essentially startups mm -hmm. that are that are built to uh, to fail to spend all their money down in a short period of time, and yet the consultant culture currently um, because because campaigns rely so much on these consultants, um, it has been harder for them to innovate. And so we make it a part of our mission to actually share everything that we learn and experiment tactically and measurement wise uh, with the progressive community, so they get smarter and then they ask smarter questions of their consultants. And that in turn makes their consultants uh, uh, work harder to, to be more effective. Well, that's good because we want to drill into some of those learnings. But I want to start at a very top level because this is a question that I get a lot from people in our field in consumer media and marketing when they look at this last cycle. Uh, and it's a very existential question about the role of money in media. Um, and uh, it, it's there were unprecedented levels of fundraising uh, and media spend this cycle. Entire TV markets um, were locked up uh, in some DMAs we're seeing mind-numbing levels of impressions uh, per, per voter. And I've spoken to the Trump campaign themselves and they've acknowledged that it was uh, that it, it was often being outspent three by three to four times in a lot of markets and often locked out of many markets. Uh, and in the end, uh, I know this is arguable, but Biden seems to have underperformed polling. Uh, Democrats lost House seats. Uh, and did not win back state legislatures. So a lot, the question that I hear from a lot of media mavens is, did media matter in this cycle? What did we learn about what the limitations are of massive media spend and brand building? Yeah, it's it's a really important question. I would I would reframe one piece of it where um, rather than Joe Biden underperforming polling, I think our polling is quite broken. Um, and that's okay. a separate topic for okay. a separate podcast, but it's an important one too because um, often campaigns and the the media and public perception does rely on polling to understand the state of a race, and that of course informs the spending, um, mm -hmm. as does competitive reports. So the other thing that I would say is um, something I, I think about quite a bit is that for a very, very, very long period of time um, in America, there were very few trusted um, channels that people got their information, right? And, and so it was easy. It was, it was much more centralized, right? You could buy, uh, you could buy up television advertising in the evening news uh, and, and, and during daytime programming and all of these things. And you could, you would have a real insurance policy that you were reaching a good chunk of the audience you wanted to reach because they were there. Today, we live in a really distributed, decentralized media environment. Um, people self-select where they get their news and information. Uh, we live in an attention economy uh, where everybody lives on different social media platforms. And within those platforms, they live in echo chambers uh, that are really um, designed by their own engagement through algorithms. And so you, you really need to take a much more diversified approach to media and advertising to reach your audiences where they are. And um, and politics has been uh, slow, was slow to, to sort of adapt to this new environment. Um, 
moment. I am very, very pleased and proud that uh, campaigns spent more on digital advertising in this cycle than ever before. That's something we've been strong proponents of, but even that isn't enough. So to your point about all of the spending on television, um, I do believe there is a time and place and audience for television buying, but there is no way for us to understand diminishing returns. So how people base how much they should spend is really about competitives. Um, it's about how much the other side is spending. And we know now that the most money you spend as a campaign or candidate does not mean that you're the surest bet to win. And, and that did actually used to be the case. You could see polls move based mm -hmm. on your uh, your the number of points you purchased. That's mm -hmm. no longer the case and for good reason um, uh, because the majority, the vast majority of um, the American electorate, they are not getting their news and information on television anymore. They really aren't. They're getting their news and information in, in, in the news feeds of Facebook and Instagram and YouTube watching videos um, and, and you know Pinterest and Reddit and all of these different platforms, TikTok if you're young and Snapchat. And so um, it's, it's a very different difficult question to answer. Does media matter? I think yes, but what media you purchase and, and what content and content strategy you deploy on those platforms is really critical. And also what KPIs do you pay attention to? Um, there has been very little accountability um, in media spending to know that it works. And so we we also on our team at Acronym um, spent a great deal of time and resources to build our own uh, measurement platforms to understand was our content on Facebook, on Instagram, actually um, shifting people's opinion about the president's uh, performance and failed response to the coronavirus, what have you. Um, and that's really important because then, then you have more of an assurance that, that your, your dollars, you're getting a better return on that investment. And it's very hard to have uh, any sense of a return on investment on television any longer. I definitely want to get to that, to the, to the KPIs. Let's start at the front end, which is the media spend itself and allocation. How did allocation change this cycle? I know you've been a longtime advocate of moving more into digital, but for many, many cycles, uh, even though there was a lot of big talk about investing more in digital, we always came out at the other end hearing, well, uh, usually like around 20, 25%, maybe if we were lucky. Um, where was it this cycle generally, and then for you in particular? Yeah, sure. And um, the the reason that um, that that it, it the needle wasn't moving uh, too much very quickly was was really again back to this sort of consultant infrastructure that I mentioned in politics, where really um, television consultants, media consultants who make television ads and and then and then have them placed on behalf of campaigns and organizations, they really are uh, at the top of the hierarchy. They are the message strategists of a campaign, and so they have a great deal of power. Um, and that is also how they make their living. Um, there are uh, commission fees that are extraordinary on buys. That is an outdated model um, today because your content needs to be made for specific platforms and really, again, um, across many, many, many different platforms and channels to effectively reach your audience. So yes, um, campaigns spent much more on digital. I mean, we saw, um, uh, I mean, millions and millions of dollars. Our organization alone deployed $75 million on digital alone 
across channels in this election cycle. Um, and we were not the top spender. We were probably in the top three. Um, but uh, the Trump campaign uh, never stopped spending from when he was inaugurated on channels like Facebook and Google and, and spent over a hundred million dollars um, on those channels in this election. And so the numbers are extraordinary. Um, the, the, the spike from, from cycles past was large. I don't have the exact percentage number. Um, that would that would be one that's interesting. So I think that we made headway, but we didn't see a decrease in spend on television. So I, I don't think that we made as much traction as we could. But again, I think it's an important point that it isn't just about spending money on digital. You need to go where people are and you need to make sure that um, that the content really is native to those platforms. And so it's a much heavier tactical and strategic lift than just buying television ads. And that's another you know good reason that the industry has been slower to adapt. I want to drill into a couple of these channels because uh, one of the big discussions because of the pandemic was the way in which the get out the vote um, effort had to be uh, digitized, especially for the Democrats. Uh, and a lot of discussion about the, about the, about the distinction between uh, digital get out the vote uh, effectiveness versus door knocking. So what did we learn about how and in what ways digital is effective and in getting out the vote and, and the ways in which it compares to door knocking? Sure. So um, the Democratic Party has always been one of organizing. Um, uh, that is that is really core and at the heart of um, of the progressive movement, and that does involve traditional tactics like door knocking, canvassing, as we call it. Um, but of course, uh, that becomes much harder in a pandemic. We've been advocates long before the pandemic of bringing organizing tactics online um, as well, because again, um, your your response rate is much higher. Uh, the difference between a response rate door knocking, which might be you might you might talk to three out of 10 people you knock doors on if you're lucky that's a good mm -hmm. day or a good shift um, that's a really poor return on that investment of that person's time whereas if you text message those 10 people your response rate is going to be closer to eight or nine out of ten mm -hmm. um, and so so even before the pandemic really forced the acceleration of digitizing um, uh, get out the vote um, programs and outreach to voters uh, we knew the data backed up that this was a more effective approach approach. Um, and, and, and really, I do believe that uh, the right, the, the conservative movement um, really effectively started pushing their narratives and organizing networks online more quickly um, mm -hmm. than, than progressives did. And yet, I think that we not only caught up, but leapfrogged uh, conservatives in this past election. So some of the things that I think were learned were, of course, uh, uh, SMS, so text messaging, mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and, and peer peer text messaging. So relational organizing um, is, uh, is a term that has gotten a lot more uh, popularity this cycle, but it is uh, as old as time. And, and relational organizing just means friend to friend or peer to peer outreach, asking a volunteer uh, to call the people in their phone book who live in their neighborhood um, who might be persuadable or, or need to get out the vote. So that was deployed across text messaging and social media. Um, the other thing was um, was influencers, uh, micro and and uh, and more celebrity or national influencers. And micro influencers, I think, are really key and a key part of the story of 2020 and innovation in politics. And that is finding people who have followings, who are trusted messengers of people in their community, whether that community is uh, Gen Z uh, college students or whether it is suburban um, uh, moms. Uh, 
um, in certain communities or whether it is, uh, it, it's just the folks that live within your town or state and finding those people that are influential and have a following um, on platforms like Facebook and Instagram and having them deploy your message. Um, and there, there has been a lot of innovation and technology to, to measure the impact of that um, because it's hard to trace, but, but that is incredibly powerful because messenger, as we know, matters sometimes even more than message. Well, um, th this is probably a good uh, spot to drill into then the KPIs, because you mentioned we, we have better tools for gauging effectiveness. Uh, and you mentioned that you've built a platform that's sort of aimed at trying to, to better understand what impact you're having. What are the key KPIs when it comes to gauging influence? Because I know traditionally in you know our past years in covering this space and talking to a lot of people in the political space about social platforms, especially, they have often they have often said to me, we never see it as a conversion um, uh, medium. We see it as a fundraising medium. Um, but you're suggesting that in fact you can you can measure influence and you can measure uh, conversion. So tell us a little bit about the key KPIs you look at there and what really 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 is moving the needle. Sure. So in in politics, uh, we we used to have sort of two different objectives and types of programs in advertising, and now I would argue we have three. The two traditional ones are persuasion, right? So influencing uh, the opinion of specific audiences um, to support or oppose a candidate. Um, uh, and the second traditional one is, as you mentioned, get out the vote, which is mobilization, actually mobilizing people who are likely to vote or who have been persuaded to actually fill out their ballot, drop it in the mailbox, or show up at early vote location or their polling location on election day. The third newer one, um, I, I refer to as motivation. Um, folks call it different things, um, uh, but you could look, of it, look at it as a persuasion to vote. Um, effort, which is talking um, to people who, who would never, for instance, vote for Donald Trump, but are less likely um, to show up and to talk to them much earlier than in the traditional get out the vote phase. Um, and, and that's a really key um, development in campaigns. And the Biden campaign deployed this too. I think they called it mobivation uh, or something. Mm -hmm. It didn't really stick, but mobilization and motivation and, and uh, motivation combined. And so um, that is uh, for for each of those three different objectives, you have different KPIs because you're trying to achieve different things. So for persuasion, that's the toughest to measure, as any brand marketer knows. Right. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you need to you need to be able to survey um, a sample of your audience. Um, and, and there are a number of different ways and tools to do that. All of them are flawed in certain ways. Um, and I ran the most experiments, the most persuasion experiments on a digital program in 2016 on the Democratic side, more than any other campaign organization when I was at Priorities. And the best tool that we had at that time was actually Facebook's brand lift tool. Because um, I and my team are very, very deep believers in in-field research. So um, most of the tools to measure persuasion are in survey or in panel, which means that you are um, presenting an ad to a closed panel mm -hmm. um, of representative voters um, of your audience. And so they are watching it and then they are responding to it. Mm -hmm. um, we don't believe that that is as effective because when you are scrolling through your Facebook feed, it's much more noisy environment. And so we need to actually understand 
if people are seeing the ads, number one, when they're getting served them, and then if they are having that desired effect. And so we really do believe in actually serving our audience, the ads in, in the native environment on Facebook and, and creating randomized treatment control experiments that allow us to withhold a control group that is not served the ad. Both of those audiences, the treatment and the control are surveyed and asked questions about, for instance, their support of a candidate or a horse race question before mm. the treatment group is served the ads. And then after that, they've been served the ads. Both audiences, again, are surveyed and we are able to compare the results. And that allows us to see if the ad actually changed the answers of our voters as compared to the folks that were not served that ad. And that has been around for a long time. You can design those experiments. What, what we did that where we innovated in this space was that you used to have to take six to eight weeks before you could even get results. Mm-hmm. So really it doesn't allow you to be very nimble. As we know, especially because of 2020, the entire world can change within a day or a week or in a few hours as it did yesterday. So you have to be more nimble because your results might no longer be relevant mm-hmm. to inform the ads you develop. So what we did is we built a platform called Barometer that allowed us to run these experiments on a weekly basis mm-hmm. um, and make it more cost efficient. And we did that by surveying our audiences directly on Facebook um, and, and continuing to push out different narratives to them and understand which ones were moving which segments of our audience. Um, And we shared those learnings with the community. It also led us to a second platform that we built, we called Dorothy, which predicted based on certain um, uh, emojis uh, on Facebook that that voters would use to respond to a video, for instance. There's a ha-ha emoji, there is a angry emoji, a sad emoji. Um, it would predict based on the threshold of different emoji uses, if that ad was persuasive or if it was having the opposite effect, a backlash effect. And so we found, um, which was incredibly interesting that if an ad had a very high threshold of ha ha emojis, and it was not a funny ad that predicted that that ad was actually pushing people closer to Trump when our desired effect was obviously to push them away from Trump. So we were able to then take those ads down very quickly. Um, And on the other side of the coin, if an ad had a high threshold of angry and sad emojis, that predicted that it was having its persuasive effect. And so, and we were able to look and make sure that that was truly representative. It wasn't one certain type of person that did emojis. Um, And that um, that was really helpful because then, we could run a ton of different ads and boosted news content on fa- Facebook and quickly only put the most money behind the ones that were working. Yeah. There may be hundreds of ad executives now who are, who are asking their under- underlings, do we have an emoji metric? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yes, we call great, it the ha-ha ratio. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, what's our ha-ha ratio on that last campaign? That's yeah, and we believe those learnings, I mean, you know, it was built on a model about Trump support, support of Donald Trump. And so, um, but if you feed different models into it and survey research, then um, you could find probably different emojis uh, uh, signal different experiences by the by the audience. Uh, I want to come back to to creative in a second, but first I want to start at the targeting and talk about targeting on, on Facebook. One of the legends of the last presidential cycle is that the Republicans made superior use of micro-targeting. They did rapid fire dynamic creative testing, especially on Facebook, to activate these small pockets of new and swing voters. First of all, 
What's your opinion of the sort of mythological effectiveness of this technique, whether A, it happened, and B, whether it really worked, and whether the Democrats came into this cycle uh, or subsequent cycles thinking they needed to counter that in some way? Sure. Um, so on your first question, um, I will say um, broadly, micro-targeting, targeting very specific niche audiences based on where they live or their uh, their demographics, their gender, their age, their interests, uh, their professions, their education level. Um, that that is that is incredibly effective no matter what industry you're in because it allows you to really customize your message and your creative for that audience and it allows you to just know your audience better uh, see what they respond to well and not and then of course tailor your program so micro targeting is not um, uh, it has a very bad rep for good reasons for privacy reasons we haven't um, you know really explored um, as a society in the ways that we should um, and yet it also has a lot of benefits. Uh, for marketers and consumers, uh, because you're only getting content or products that you're really interested in. So there, there's arguments on both sides. Um, uh, what the Trump campaign did um, uh, when it came to micro-targeting that became controversial, um, truly it, it was less, um, well, so there were two different two different things based on what you said. So one, their rapid testing and optimization, that was actually more the deployment of A-B testing mm -hmm. of ads to understand which ones led to the most donations, um, merchandise purchases and petition signups, email signups, text message, cell phone signups, et cetera, um, uh, based on tweaking things like the color of uh, behind Trump's image, sure. the image of Trump, what have you. Um, and that is really important. And that's something anyone and everyone can deploy. It's not very novel. They just did it um, at a scale that had not been seen in politics before. But that there, there, there's a key difference there. They did not deploy that strategy for persuasion the way I was talking about the work that we did of optimizing. Mm -hmm. That was really just based on engagement metrics, which are much easier, right, to measure because the platforms give you those, um, those KPIs. Um, I, on the on the on the micro-targeting piece that was controversial, um, that Trump made controversial, I should say, is that in 2016, they were, and, and in 2020, they targeted specific constituencies, um, uh, Black voters in particular, Black men, um, and, and Latino men in particular, uh, with, with different, uh, you know, negative political ads. In, in 2016, the story that was made popular was the fact that they targeted a, a number of Black voters across states with um, ads uh, where Hillary Clinton uh, Mm -hmm. talking about the story of her calling um, certain uh, people super predators and, and targeted them. Um, that is just leveraging the tools you have with negative ads. That ad, frankly, um, you know, had some fact to it because they had a video clip of Hillary Clinton that was not a deep fake. Um, what we saw in the evolution, the really, or devolution, I should say, since 2016, is the deployment of disinformation to targeted audiences, which is really dangerous, mm -hmm. right? So being able to spread uh, false information, which Facebook upholds by political candidates, um, to specific audiences. And, and, and when you do that, it doesn't break through on the surface, right? Because it doesn't make it to cable news until it's had a lot of damage. 
Uh, it's done the damage uh, that is meant to do. Um, and so that's why it's controversial. Um, however, that is also why Facebook and Google released transparency tools that allowed anyone, reporters or the general public, to look and see what ads were being deployed by political campaigns and action committees like ours. Um, and we, uh, we started a newsletter back in 2018 called For What It's Worth that we still run every Friday um, that tracked the digital spending on Facebook and Google for both Democrats and Republicans and the campaigns and super PACs. So we could provide some more transparency to folks about who, uh, who campaigns were reaching and with what kind of content. Uh, let's drill it. Let's spend a second talking about misinformation and the ways in which that became an important part of the democratic effort was countering misinformation or at least dealing with it. What, tell us about the nature of that effort. Yeah, sure. Um, so there's um, there have been uh, you know there's a number of different ways uh, to approach this. Right now, we live um, uh, in in a, a moment where we are in an information uh, and disinformation epidemic um, in this country. There has always been disinformation and conspiracy theories that have gained traction uh, through all of the history of humankind. Um, the, the challenge right now is that social media platforms and their algorithms um, uh, have made uh, conspiracy theories and disinformation spread much more rapidly um, to the point at which when um, it is identified or reported or, or, or taken down, it has already done a great deal of damage. It has already reached the masses. Um, and that does doesn't just happen with advertising. In fact, most disinformation is spread organically through organic posts and memes and text messages and, and in message groups and Facebook groups. So it's incredibly difficult to number one monitor uh, and, and to inoculate against. So um, there's two different things that need to happen, right? Offense and defense. And I would say that the most resources and energy on the Democratic side this past cycle were spent on defense. They were spent on monitoring monitoring uh, disinformation narratives where they were spreading, trying to find the root of them, and then working with the platforms when they, the platforms were responsive to get that, to get that disinformation um, curbed and those posts taken down. And when the, when the platforms were not responsive to go public, right? Uh, we, 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 Took uh, we we played a role in that as well, um, and 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 that would mean going to the press. Um, the challenge with that is the number one rule with any misinformation is that you never ever want to amplify it. You never want to repost it, even if you are debunking it, because that continues to spread the lie. Um, and so, so there was a great deal of work and infrastructure put together to monitor and shut down disinformation narratives. Um, however, there it's everywhere, and it's uh, it's incredibly hard to to find um, every piece of disinformation and understand which ones are going to gain more traction. So, I believe that we still do not know the impact of QAnon and the narratives that they spread and the influence that they had on voters' opinions in this election, because it's very difficult to measure. And some people don't even uh, think that they need to because they didn't hear about it on cable news. And that's that's another challenge. How do you quantify, if you have you been able to quantify the impact, the effect of your uh, counter efforts this last campaign? 
Sure. So I, I mean, I think that the, that success is measured with those counter efforts and and how uh, how many narratives they are able to stop in their tracks, how much mm-hmm. content they're be able to they're they're able to have taken down before it reaches um, the masses, um, and 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 how many changes they were able to have the platforms make through public pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, uh, very relevant to this week, both Facebook and Twitter banned Donald Trump's accounts last night. Um, uh, that was not a preventative measure. We have been calling for that as the president has been the biggest spreader of disinformation, a super spreader, if you will, of disinformation for many years that led to the escalation and climax of, uh, of, of the attempted coup, if you will, um, on our government yesterday. And so, um, so, so that is what I would describe as too little too late. Um, uh, and, and yet I hope that it does bring about a reckoning for these platforms that they have got to invest more, um, in being more proactive, um, with their policies and their, their, um, enforcement of those policies, uh, p- policies to stop disinformation actors and content before it has, um, these, these truly dangerous and detrimental effects on our society. Uh, we have to wrap, but I want to wrap on, on sort of the exit question about the key lessons learned. Uh, from on the digital channels from this cycle, uh, both pro and con. Uh, let's start with what what went wrong or needs to be reevaluated in the next cycle. Sure. So I think that we made a great deal of progress. Again, I think that we out innovated um, the right. I think what often happens is that when one party or uh, um, entity um, makes great deal of innovation and progress, they tend to rest on their laurels a bit, um, and that that creates the space um, for their opponent um, to out innovate. And that happened to Democrats after after the 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 uh, the glory years of Obama, when when we really were the most innovative party on the internet and Trump um, took back that mantle. And I believe that we have now taken it back. So there was a great deal of innovation and experimentation that happened. I think um, when it comes to things that we need to, to change, I really do believe that there needs to be a much deeper understanding and acknowledgement of the role that the right-wing media and disinformation plays on the psyche of the American electorate. And that paid advertising alone is not sufficient to counter that. We need to be building media infrastructure and properties. We need to be deploying influencers who have real audience reach um, and trust. And we need to be taking an all of the above approach. Um, We can no longer just invest in television, digital and radio advertising and organizing if we want to build real power um, and have an impact. And and I do believe that um, the consultant culture is holding us back from that and uh, their relationships to, to key stakeholders and party leadership. And I am hopeful that the ground is shifting because 74 million Americans voted for Trump. This was not the landslide that the polls or the pundits made us believe Mm -hmm. it could be. And that is because a significant portion um, of the American people believe the disinformation that is reaching them on social Mm -hmm. media platforms. And we are not sufficiently countering that. And so um, I want to see more deep investment in infrastructure that reaches voters and Americans every single day of the year, the way the right has. Um, and, and again, not just rely on what I describe as the icing of the cake, the reinforcement mm-hmm. in advertising. We actually need the cake. 
Tara McGowan, uh, founder and CEO of Acronym, thank you so much today. Tara's going to be with us later this month at the Marketing Politics event on the 26th and 27th. We'll see you again there. Thank you, Tara. Thank you so much, Stephen. Happy New Year. Let's hope it's a good one. And thanks for tuning in to Media Post Brand Insider Podcast. You can keep up to date with breaking marketing and media news at mediapost.com. That's also where you can subscribe to the Brand Insider newsletter, where highlighted versions of these interviews can go to your email inbox each week. If you have any comments or suggestions for the Brand Insider series, please send them to me, steve at mediapost.com.